Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street partners with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across Australia and the globe to train leaders, develop engagement strategies and to empower people to organise for change. In 2020, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to make a difference, inspire, give hope and enable leadership to achieve their shared purpose. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com. .au. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic. My name is Stephen Donnelly and this is your favourite weekly centre-left political and cultural podcast that dives into the progressive issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. Uh, and on this week's episode, we're joined by Katie Conley, who is an expat that now lives in the United States of America. She's a Democratic pollster and a strategist at the Benison Strategy Group, who uh, most recently uh, she worked on Mayor Pete's, uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg's presidential campaign during the Democratic primaries. And actually, we're going to hear some really cool stories about that campaign, some insider baseball, which we really appreciate uh, Katie taking the time to share with us. Uh, she also ran the lead polling operation for the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016. And in the 2012 cycle, managed the lead polling operation for President Barack Obama. And prior to that, she actually was a political journalist and was embedded in the campaign in the 2008 cycle with the Republican candidates for president. And I'm laughing because this is actually the second time I've done this. I had to stop the other one because I had a mental block and I forgot Sarah Palin's name uh, with John McCain and Sarah Palin. How could I forget that? Anyway, so we're going to be talking to Katie today about her entry into uh, working in US politics from as, as a girl growing up in Brisbane, Queensland, um, and some insight into some of the previous campaigns that she's worked on, in particular the Biden campaign. And then we're going to spend a bit of time talking about the current con- climate in the US. And she's going to get her polling insights into some of those key battleground states for the presidency. Um, she's an incredibly uh, busy uh, an important person, and I really do appreciate her time coming out on the show today. And we had a great chat, so I'm hoping you'll look forward to today's episode. Um, also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And if you le- use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating uh, and a review. And for all the updates, don't forget to follow Dunn Street, D U N Street, S T R E T, on Facebook. Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And I was looking at the stats the other day. Someone who lives in Brockton, Massachusetts, listens to the podcast. Um, so whoever you are, if you want us to do a podcast, which is just going to basically talk about the Bruins or the Pats or the Celtics or the Red Sox, I'll do it. I'm happy to do that for you. Uh, just hit us up on one of our social media um, apps and say, g'day, introduce yourself. Um, thanks for listening to, by the way, you listen to a lot of our podcasts. So the stats tell me, so I really appreciate that. And to all the rest of our viewers, uh, listeners rather around the world and back home here in Australia, I always appreciate your loyalty to the show and make sure you tell your friends about it. Um, and in particular, this podcast is a pretty cool one that we've done with, uh, Katie. So let's get to today's episode. Okay, we're taping this one on a glorious Friday afternoon in uh, downtown Melbourne. Finally, a break in the weather. Um, and joining me on the line uh, is a Democratic pollster and strategist for the Benison Strategy Group uh, and uh, an expat, but is home at the moment. So we've taken full advantage of being on the same time zone uh, to talk to her today. Uh, Katie Connolly, welcome to Socially Democratic. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. 
the last time uh, we spoke was when uh, I was over in, uh, in Washington, D.C. in October last year um, with the uh, Dunn Street's uh, U.S. Uh, engagement uh, mission. It was a, actually quite an um, unusually balmy evening for late October in Washington from memory. Um, and mm -hmm. you spoke to uh, the delegation uh, on a very, very first night. There were some jet-lagged um, folks sitting around that lovely table in that restaurant in D.C. Um, so much has changed since we last oh, caught wow. up. It's a different world. It is. And with 67 days to go in the election, I just really wanted to um, take advantage of you uh, being um, uh, over this side of the, the pond to talk about um, the the. U.S. presidential election campaign, um, and in particular, get your thoughts on um, the primaries for the Democratic uh, nomination since you were so heavily involved in Mayor Pete's campaign. But yep. before we do do that, just for our audience, just give us a sense of your introduction into politics because you obviously you grew up in Brisbane, Queensland, correct? That is correct. Brisbane born and bred. So how, what was your, were you politically active when you, when you were still living here in Australia? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was pretty involved in student politics at the University of Queensland. Um, I was, you know, one of the, you know, key officials, I guess, of the student union um, at the University of Queensland. I was quite involved with the National Organization of Labor Students. Um, I went to a couple of NUS conferences. So it definitely cut my teeth in student politics, which um, is such a unique creature in Australia. There's nothing like it in the United States. Um, really gave me a good grounding in um all the things that can go on in an election campaign. <laughs> um, and, you know, had, had always uh, had a fascination with American politics because, you know, if you're somebody who loves politics and is, you know, committed to social change and, and wants to sort of spend your life working towards a better world, you know, the, the US presidential system and the US election, it's sort of like the World Cup of politics, right? It is the biggest, most expensive, uh, longest, uh, most dynamic uh, political in arena in the world. Um, and so I had, you know, watched it from afar just as an observer um, and gotten a chance, you know, when I moved over there to um, really sink my teeth in and uh, and, you know, I love it. I'm like a pig in shit with all this sort of stuff. I'm sorry, am I allowed to swear on your podcast? But absolutely. Swear <laughs> as much as you. Bit of a, I have a bit of a potty mouth. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, it, you know, and the, I think the other thing about, you know, being an Australian and being um, very involved in U.S. presidential politics is that I come in it with the perspective of knowing that what happens in the United States echoes around the world. You know, what the, the, the choices that get made in that Oval Office matter to Australians. They matter to us on a foreign policy level. They matter to us on an economic level. But I also think, you know, particularly um, conservatives in Australia do sometimes take their cues from some of the things that Republicans are pushing in the United States. You think about deregulating college costs and stuff like that that have been part of the liberal agenda here in Australia. Um, and they get permission structures from what is happening over there as well. So I, I do think that obviously it matters most first and foremost to America and Americans, but it does resonate globally. And so, I, you know, that's part of the reason that I feel so strongly and so profoundly about sort of the political races I've been involved with and, and the issues and the advocacy work that, that we do as well. How did you end up getting over to the US and immersing yourself in, mm. in, in, in American politics? <laughs> Um, you know, a little bit of right place, right time, for sure. Um, I, 
was in the US. Um, I moved there in 2004, officially. Um, I had a job at the Australian Embassy, um, which was a, a great fun thing to do in my 20s. But, um, you know, this was the Howard years. I worked for a lot of very conservative folks there. Um, wasn't really a great fit for me personally. Um, and decided to go to graduate school. Um, I went and did a Master of Public Policy um, at the Kennedy School of Government in Harvard, uh, which was an incredible sort of life-changing experience and really opened a lot of doors for me. Um, and one of those doors was into political journalism. Um, I had met Evan Thomas, who was at that time the editor at large of Newsweek magazine, which back in 2005, 2006, when all this was happening, Newsweek magazine was still um, a very important publication in the United States, but, you know, one of the two news weekly magazines that had, you know, for a very long time in American history, really set the tone for a lot of political and, and national coverage there. Um, Newsweek has since sort of collapsed along with a lot of other forms of journalism. Um, but I was sort of in the last great heyday of Newsweek. Um, I was able to, through meeting Evan and, and being recommended for a job there, uh, I, I was given a sort of the role of a lifetime, um, I got to be an embed on the 2008 McCain campaign um, for a special project that they used to do, um, which they don't do anymore, obviously. But they would, they would detach a team of reporters from the week-to-week -week magazine and embed us with the campaigns. And the whole idea was that we were there to get the behind-the-scenes story. So none of, none of what we found out, none of what we reported or were told during the time we were embeds made its way back into the news cycle at the weekly magazine. It was all embargoed and all closely had until, held until two days after the election. And then we published a, a big, massive special issue it was entirely devoted to, you know, the narrative behind the scenes thing of the campaign. And then, you know, that got turned into a book. And so, uh, you know, obviously Obama was the big story that year, but um, being part of the McCain-Palin press corps was also really interesting um, and a great experience. But, you know, after a few years of journalism, um, I really wanted to be more in the arena um, and not on the sidelines anymore. You know, as a journalist, you're, you're covering it. Um, but I had pretty strong feelings about politics and I really wanted to be in it. Um, and, you know, again, through somebody I knew, found out about a job that was um, going at the Benenson Strategy Group, where I now work, and Joel Benenson, who is the founder and CEO of our firm, um, had been Obama's lead pollster for many years at that point, and they were looking for somebody to work um, in a more senior level, managing the Obama polling going into 2012. But the interesting thing about Joel is that though he is a pollster, he has his roots in journalism. He actually worked at um, the New York Daily News and um, was a tabloid journalist for a little while. And so what he was really looking for in this role was somebody who could write and somebody who could communicate. And his theory of the case, which is now my theory of the case, is you, know, you can teach anybody to read a poll. You can teach anybody to read a set of numbers. But um, having a good facility with language and having a really good ability to communicate to non-math, non-data people, what a, what a set of numbers mean strategically for a campaign, you know, that's a much harder skill to teach, which is why he was looking for people who understand narrative and understand um, communication strategies. And um, I ended up getting that job. Uh, and I've been there ever since. I, I had a brief detour after the 2016 loss, which I took pretty hard. Um, I went and worked at a corporate firm for a little while and then very quickly turned around and said, this is not for me. Um, <laughs> I came back to Joel and he graciously took me back. And I've since been, you know, 
doing polling, political polling again at BSG. So that was a pretty long roundabout story, but hopefully got you the answers that you need. No, and there's a couple of things I want to pick up on there just uh, before we move into some more contemporary politics. Uh, the first one is um, y you and I are a part of a Harvard alumni. You've studied at the Kennedy School of Government and I've been to the gift shop a lot of times <laughs> when I've been to Boston. Same thing, totally the same thing. Absolutely. Um, may have spent as much money probably as you did on your degree as I've done on swag. So, uh, I might debate you. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I was very, I was lucky to get, um, the Menzies scholarship, which was an incredible thing. I wouldn't have been able to go to the Kennedy school had I not gotten that scholarship because it is really, really expensive and the Menzies folk are super generous. Um, but I still had to fork out a bunch of money on my own too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not cheap <laughs> it's at all. pretty pricey, man. It is indeed. Uh, and from there into uh, a lowly uh, political journalism job, you're not making a, I can tell you I did not make a lot of money working for Newsweek <laughs> at all. And uh, yeah, those, those bills were pretty scary for a couple of years there. <laughs> what I do want to ask you actually about the Newsweek is working on the, uh, or covering the McCain-Palin campaign. And uh, I'm sure you've read, um, is it uh, Game Changer or Game Change? I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah, yeah this, which was a bit of a sort of a, it was almost like tabloidy kind of book, really, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, but it's still fun, a fun read. Yeah. When you were covering that campaign, did you pick up on the because John McCain and Sarah Palin, are f their politics, I think anyway, are fundamentally at odds within the broader centre right part of um, yeah. of politics. Did how did that dynamic work? Did you pick up on tension that existed? that has been reported on since then? Um, so uh, part of my less enthusiastic response to your mention of game change is that um, a lot of the stuff that, that was reported in my reporting and in my book was also in game change. And then it got a lot more press attention yeah. and people thought it was original to them, but we actually also had a lot of that sort of stuff, especially about, I mean, I broke the story about um, Sarah Palin's shopping sprees and all of the you know stuff that she had done on the campaign credit card, you know, that all of that was in our book. But um, look, I think, uh, I know, I think the thing that's, um, I think the thing that's sort of in some ways a little misunderstood about the McCain and Palin partnership was, um, it wasn't a choice about ideology. It wasn't a choice about where she stood politically. Um, it, was a, it was a twofold choice. One was that they needed to do something to shake up the race. They wanted to do something splashy and different. And she was clearly an unexpected choice and a charismatic figure and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but I think the thing that people fail to appreciate sometimes is that McCain, even as the standard bearer of the, standard bearer of the Republican party, always thought of himself as a maverick, you know, that, that they use that word, but always thought of himself as like a bit of a bomb thrower, somebody who liked to buck convention, who liked to go outside of the party's norms. Um, and really prided himself on that little bit of, um, you know, poking his finger in the eye of, you know, the establishment to a degree. Um, and that had been a big part of his political um, persona for, for many years. And I think what he saw in Sarah Palin was a kindred spirit on that front. Like, this is somebody who bucked convention, who didn't do what she was told. And I think he really relished that element of her. And certainly the first couple of weeks of their partnership um, before... She had, you know, after her convention speech and when they went on the road together, the sort of chaos and whatever that she brought to the campaign. Um, at first, he really loved. At first, he really enjoyed like that that sort of um, 
throwing caution to the wind and watching sort of reporters, you know, struggle to make sense of it all and watching the crowds get excited and her family sort of coming onto the bus and, you know, making themselves at home and causing just disruption. Um, he loved that. You know, he liked the sort of, you know, punch in the face of the establishment, if you like. Um, and I think it got more tense later on as the sort of policy and political differences became more stark and that she, um, you know, she started to go off on her own a lot more and not listen to campaign advice and, and sort of became the star of her own show rather than being, you know, the, 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 the loyal, faithful to IC. Um, I think that became a problem. But in the initial pick, at any rate, like there was a lot of excitement about this idea that they were, they were both unusual characters and there was an affinity with that unusual um, way of approaching politics between him and, and Palin. Um, Soured, obviously, um, and particularly among the advisors, just things went south pretty quick. Um, but the first couple of weeks, there was a lot of um, excitement on that campaign about her. Fast forwarding to the 2016 uh, campaign, uh, and I don't want to give you PTSD on this one, but I... <laughs> believe me, it's all it's all there, just below the surface. Yeah. I, I might go down a rabbit hole, and you'll never stop me talking. B bubbling away. Well, well, let's try and uh, keep you um, on uh, on the on the straight and narrow here. But I do because of your background in polling and your involvement in the campaign. I'm interested in getting your thoughts on this. I guess it is a narrative, a post campaign, and, and that analysis about why Hillary or why the campaign lost uh, the states of Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania to Trump, this yeah. blue wall that we spoke of. Did the campaign see warning signs of that happening when they did? Was it too late? Was it, did, it ha did they not see it? What, what was going on there? I, I heard anecdotal evidence from organiser friends of mine, so former OFA kind, kinds of people, who were saying that um, that the campaign didn't send in any field organisers into Michigan until you know late, late in the game um, because they just didn't know. I mean, I don't know if this is true, but I just want to want to get your thoughts from from a polling perspective. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to the ground game um, in any real detail, but I, I mean, and it, it's no secret that the campaign stopped polling in those states. Um, I didn't have any data from those states, so no, I didn't see anything. You know, they had some analytics trackers, which is a different thing than polling. Um, and Joel and myself fought very hard to try to continue polling in a lot of these battleground states. And for whatever reason, there was a decision that they were firm and we shouldn't do that. And so we, we, we didn't have the warning signs. No, we didn't know. Um, we went into election day thinking that we were going to win. And, and I do think that a lot of folks are looking for an easy explanation of what happened there, right? That there's like this one reason, there's this silver bullet thing that we could have done differently or could have changed and it would have altered the result. But, you know, when you're talking about losing three states by 80,000 votes, like there are so many things mm. that could have happened um, that that really could have, you know, changed the entire dynamic. You know, 80,000 votes, she would, she would have won them, you know, and, and she'd be the president, right? So I, I, mistakes were made. Um, I think there was certainly, you know, m presumptiveness about her strength in those states that clearly was not true. Um, but from a polling perspective, you know, a couple of things. One, um, a sort of a technical thing is that I think we really underestimated the third party vote. You know, in those states, um, those exact ones that we're talking about, they're about, um, I think it was about 600,000 
third party votes. That's more, well more than the margin that we needed to win those states. And a lot of those people, particularly the Gary Johnson supporters, were men under the age of 50 who were Obama voters. You know, so people always talk about the Obama Trump voters, but in these states, it was the Obama Gary Johnson voters that really hurt us. Um, and a lot of them were younger voters, 18 to 29 year olds, and they skewed male, but also female. So the third party dynamic was a really difficult one for us. Um, and we're not seeing that yet this year. We didn't have that in 2012 or 2008. Um, it was something that was fairly unique to 2016. I think the other thing um, that gets so it's sort of lost a little bit is this idea that people really thought Hillary was a shoe in, right? You had all these polling forecasters, you know, the 538s and the upshot and all of these blogs that were putting out these um, predictive models that were saying she has a 70% chance of winning. And that sounds huge, right? That sounds like you've, you've basically won it. But it's a very different story to say this is a two to three point race, which all of the polling was showing, maybe the polling was showing consistently that Hillary was up, but the margin was very small. And if you go into election day thinking this is a two point race, it's a very different story to going into election day thinking this is a 75% chance that Hillary Clinton wins this thing. And I started to get really worried about this at a certain point late in the campaign. We were still doing big battleground surveys. We weren't doing state-based surveys, but we were doing some really big ones. And I started to ask this question that said, regardless of who you were voting for, um, who do you think is going to win the election? And repeatedly, we would get anywhere from like 65 to 70% of people saying Hillary Clinton. So what that means is that a big chunk of Trump voters and nearly all of the third party voters actually believed that Hillary was going to win. So their vote was a free vote. They didn't think their vote meant anything. So they were, they were able to, in all good conscience, go and pull the lever for, you know, Jill Stein or Gary Johnson, believing that Hillary was a shoe in and she was going to be president. I don't really like her. I don't want to have to vote for her. So I'm not going to vote for her, but all the other people will. So it's okay. So I think that free vote dynamic really hurt us a lot as well. Um, and I, you know, I can talk about other sort of, you know, communications mistakes that I think were made or, you know, differences of emphasis that we could have done, but um, nobody really knows, you know, <laughs> like, I think, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, the depression of the youth vote and, you know, you know, some erosion among um, African Americans and among uh, Hispanic voters in, in some of those states, but the group that swung against her hardest and were were the most difficult voters for us were white men, you know, it's, and it wasn't even white women, white men mm. um, never liked her, uh, swung very hard for Trump. Um, and we had just such differences in the margin between how Obama performed with white men and how Hillary did. Um, and really those were the voters that, um, that played a huge role in her defeat. Uh, and, you know, we're looking at a different situation when you have a, uh, an older white man at the top of the ticket this, this time around. Um, but I, I do think there are certain things that, you know, we've, we've cemented this narrative about how, um, you know, she didn't inspire turnout and all this sort of stuff. But there are actually other things that were happening that were pretty important as well. We will uh, later in the podcast uh, go, sort of run the board of all the battlegrounds uh, states that are um that are in play for the 2020 election. But um, before we do that, I do want to spend a bit of time talking about uh, the primaries because you were heavily involved mm -hmm. in the primary campaign of uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg from South Bend, Indiana, home of the Fighting Irish and the University of Notre Dame. Um, and Indeed. and uh, when, uh, first of all, how do you get on a primary campaign? Does the candidate pick you or do you pick the candidate or is it a little bit of both? 
Um, it's a bit of a funny little dance, you know, like um, there's a bit of, you know, people like me, it's not like they advertise in the newspaper and you're like, oh, I'd like to do that race. There's a bit, you know, it's all sort of, you know, people know people and you get a call and such and such wants to meet you and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I'd sort of put out the word to various people that I was interested in doing. You know, I had, you know, two candidates I was sort of interested in doing. And um, It sounds you know, like you're asking someone out in primary school. It's, it's, it's very You're weird. getting your friend to ask so-and-so if Katie's interested in me. Yeah, it's, it was sort of awkward. And, then, and then, then you go and you have to do this whole dog and pony show about how great you are. And I don't know. It's a, it's, it was a strange little exercise. But um, so it was, it's a little bit me reaching out to them, a little bit them reaching out to me. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of both. Um, and at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I, I ended up choosing them. They, they'd offered me the thing and another campaign offered me something and, and I chose Pete. So, um, and they chose me and it was a, it was a great marriage. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, as with most things, politics, um, there's a lot of like uh, networking and, you know, I've worked with such and such on this race and you think they're great and we should get this consultant in and I, I work with this person somewhere else. And it's just sort of a, the network is extremely important in sort of, getting on campaigns so why did you settle on pete oh my gosh he's just such an incredibly impressive human being you know um obviously he's incredibly bright you know that's the first thing everybody notices about him just his you know the the, the pure intellectual horsepower of that man is unbelievable um he's also really really disciplined probably the most disciplined person i've ever met in my life and that matters in a presidential campaign. You know, like these are these are rigorous undertakings. You can't have a whimsical approach to it. You know, it can't just be sort of the romance of, you know, getting on a bus and talking to voters. Like there, there is there is a strategy and you need to map it out and you need to stick to it and you need to have message discipline. Um, and you know, fundraising, all of that is sort of a not not necessarily a fun task, but there are just hurdles that you have to jump to, to mount a serious campaign. And it was very evident from very early on that not only did he have the sort of the mental rigor to, to know to do these things, but would have the discipline to really follow through. Um, and then just as a human being, um, he's incredibly thoughtful. He's a really kind person, um, very open to advice, like very interested in um, the opinions of the advisors that he's selected. Um, he doesn't always take it, you know, he, you know, he always has his own sort of thoughts and ideas, but, um, but that's a dream to work with, right? Mm. If you, if you, if you're a consultant like me to have somebody who not only is brilliant and like, this is the kind of, the kind of brilliance where, you know, you can be practicing a, an interview or, or a debate question and give him one piece of feedback and he immediately internalizes it and figures out how to make it his own and deliver it. Like, straight away like he's just such a thoroughbred from that perspective so to have all of that raw talent that that facility with language that he has that ability to communicate which is really you know his biggest asset is the way that he just is able to for ordinary voters really really clarify the issues at stake and talk about them in using different language and not to typical political pablum um you have all of that wrapped up in a package of a person who's just really lovely and great to work with. So, you know, there was, it, it's kind of a dream candidate. When I'm just trying to think about whose stocks were rising at the time that when we were in DC in late October and when we, um, you, you gave some remarks to the group that <laughs> evening at that restaurant in DC um, and you were feeling quietly confident about 
Pete, and I remember at the time someone, another Democratic candidate was doing reasonably well. Maybe it was Elizabeth Warren. I can't remember. I think it was, I think, yeah. So we, us and Warren um, in sort of October and November were really sort of on the rise and sort of Bernie had a big comeback later in that year as well. Um, but there was the October debate was a, probably the best debate that we had in terms of really defining the choice between Pete and Elizabeth Warren. Um, and that's where he sort of, you know, dismantled her on, on Medicare for all um, and a couple other things. And, you know, she obviously um, got her piece back later in, in, in the election. Um, but, you know, October was a good month for us and it was a good month for Elizabeth Warren and, um, at first. And then just going into the Iowa caucus, your expectations internally within the, within the campaign, how are you feeling? Quietly confident um, because we've done so much work in Iowa. And, you know, the thing with a candidate like Pete Buttigieg was that he had zero national name ID, you know, seven, eight months before the Iowa caucuses. You know, this is someone we took from mayor of South Bend, the city most people couldn't point to on a map, never heard his name, has a difficult name to pronounce, and to, we, you know, to take him to the top tier and to have him be considered a serious contender we had to win Iowa. Like there was, there was no coming third in Iowa for us, right? Like if we came third or fourth in Iowa, that was the end for, for Pete. You know, he had to validate his candidacy and, and, and prove both to the sort of media commenta commentariat, but also to voters that he was the real deal by notching up a win. You know, nothing, nothing communicates I'm a winner more than having a win, right? Hmm. So overcoming some of those concerns about his electability and, all, and his experience and all of that with a win was, was absolutely crucial to us. So we'd spent a long time focused very heavily on Iowa. He'd spent a lot of time there. It was a good state for him. It's very close to Indiana. Um, and there's sort of a Midwestern um, mindset that he embodies really well. Um, so we were feeling, and, and, you know, we'd been seeing the crowds growing at his events. Um, we'd been doing a lot of work outside of the major um, cities, knowing the way the caucuses operate. You know, you actually need to win statewide. You can't just run up the vote in Des Moines and think you're going to win. You actually have to win throughout the state because it's awarded on delegates versus just raw vote totals. Um, so, and we'd been seeing even in some of the eastern parts of Iowa, which are more conservative, you know, him getting these really big crowds, this great response. Um, there's a really big dinner that happens in Iowa in November before the caucuses. It used to be called the um, Jefferson Jackson dinner. It's now called the LJ. It's a big, big event um, held in an arena and everybody comes and, and does their speeches. And that night, Pete was the first speaker um, and he just gave an absolutely killer speech, really nailed it. And we had the biggest crowd presence and this is really enthusiastic crowd. Um, Warren also had an extremely enthusiastic crowd, but that's when we started to like really feel the energy and the momentum on the ground and all of these people coming into our offices and, and you know, people who Pete likes to call um, future former Republicans, like people registering as Democrats in order to vote for him. Um, it really started to feel real. And so we were confident. We weren't sure what, whether he was going to win, um, but we felt good about Iowa going into it, yeah. And it was a great result. Great result. I mean, it would have been greater if they'd called it that night. I mean, one of the biggest disappointments of the campaign was winning Iowa but not being able to really claim that victory for a week um, and just really cost us 
that Iowa bounce in some ways that a lot of other candidates have. Like we didn't get to have that that week of running around, you know, raising money and getting media about being, you know, the number one because there was all this sort of question mark over the results. Like was it us or was it Bernie? You know, mm. um, and obviously um, supporters of other candidates throwing a lot of, you know, aspersions on the results um, didn't really help us either. So it was both an incredible result and something we're so proud of and work so hard on. And, you know, this is a, a young gay married mayor that nobody had heard at winning, you know, one of the, the, the blue ribbon prizes of American politics. But um, there was also a bit of bittersweetness about not being able to really sort of uh, seize that victory in a way that, you know, had never happened before. That We'd never had that before. And it's probably the end of the Iowa caucuses as a result. Looking to then the next uh, ballot, which was uh, the New Hampshire primary, do you, I mean, it's still a great result for you guys. I mean, you, yeah. you, if I remember, I think you were, your level, you tied for delegate counts with Bernie. Yeah, we were like within a percentage point of Bernie. Yeah. Um, and uh, were your expectations after winning Iowa going into New Hampshire that that this momentum could roll into into that into that primary yeah and you know we did see some of it um i think we had a tough debate between iowa and new hampshire where um senator klobuchar had some pretty rough words for pete um and i think that that may have cost us a point or two of um women over the age of 50 who we were doing pretty well with may have defected to Senator Klobuchar in those last um, couple of days before the voting. And it would have been really nice if we'd got those extra two points and come in ahead of, of Bernie. Um, but we were still like very happy with that result. You know, like this is somebody, like we're, we're, you know, a point away from somebody who won those caucuses with 62% of the vote or 62% of the vote in, in 2016, you know, from a neighboring state, you know, he was, the, the fact that we we did so well and came so close to that um, was super exciting for us, definitely. Without wanting to draw too many comparisons between uh, Buttigieg and Obama uh, uh-huh. in their campaigns, but both Obama and Mayor Pete surprised the the punditry by winning Iowa. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Both of them uh didn't win new hampshire but were very very close in a de- in the delegate count with their mm-hmm. main rival well with the, yeah. with the person that won in this case hillary in 2008 and um bernie in 20 uh 20. so and I, myself looking at that i was thinking right okay is mayor pete going to become the the candidate for the moderate wing of the democratic party and i was seeing you know like you said amy had uh klobuchar had a very good debate and I was thinking, oh, are all of these other moderates hanging around, just even including Joe, like just are they going to eat into uh, the air that Mayor Pete needs heading into the next round of uh, uh, primaries and caucuses, which are starting to move the, into states that are a lot more diverse um, and a bit more reflective mm-hmm. of the true democratic base. What were yep. your thoughts after those two, those two first uh, in the nation uh, primaries and caucuses going into, was it Nevada and then South Carolina? Nevada, then South Carolina, and then Super Tuesday. I mean, part of the, the, the biggest challenge of this particular campaign was just how compressed those next races were. Um, you know, there was only a couple of days between South Carolina and Super Tuesday. And then California was on Super Tuesday, which is 
a massive state, the media markets there for ad buys are huge and very expensive. So just the resource intensity of the post Iowa and New Hampshire set of states and how quickly that came about, um, we always knew was going to be a real challenge. You know, Pete is not somebody who is a millionaire. Um, he didn't have a long history of fundraising. It wasn't like, you know, can I, you know, Elizabeth Warren was able to, you know, transfer $10 million from her Senate account into her um, presidential campaign at the beginning of the campaign. He didn't have any of that. He started with nothing. You know, he didn't have, you know, 10 years history of, you know, of uh, fundraising from folks. So, so we, we always had to um, work very hard to have the resources to compete. And he was obviously incredibly effective um, fundraiser and remains a very, very incredibly effective fundraiser for Joe Biden right now and for all of the down ballot candidates that he's supporting. Um, but, you know, going to those next set of states, we were pretty nervous in part because of the resource question, um, in part because in a lot of those bigger states that hadn't been paying attention in the way that Iowa and New Hampshire voters who are very much conditioned to paying attention to primaries early on, he still had pretty low name ID in a lot of those Super Tuesday states. He just didn't, people just didn't know who he was still, even though we'd won Iowa and all this sort of stuff, there was yeah. still a lot of um, question mark about who he was, which is very hard to compete against names like Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren, who everybody sort of knew, and we weren't in that camp. And then I think the other thing that people sort of forget about was um, Bloomberg's entrance into the race, even though he was a terrible candidate and got eviscerated by Elizabeth Warren and, you know, just really flamed out pretty quickly. Um, if you look at the media coverage between New Hampshire and Nevada, Bloomberg just dominated um, because he was going to get in his first debate in Nevada. And that was the one where, you know, Elizabeth Warren just went to town on him. Um, and it was just so hard to break through this Bloomberg chatter in the media, right? It was just Bloomberg, Bloomberg, he's got all this money. He's spending these record amounts of money. He's doing these massive ad buys in California. He's got staff everywhere. He's just throwing buckets of money at this thing. Um, and everybody assumed that he was going to come in and really dominate. And so we were sort of up against that as well, um, which was a really hard dynamic to cut through. Um, and then, you know, obviously Pete's support among voters of color was not great. I think it gets played up a lot more when it comes to Pete than it does to some of the other candidates, because if we're realistic, there was no candidate in the race that had a good standing, particularly with black voters. Um, aside from Joe Biden, he, he's, he was the only candidate that black voters in South Carolina in particular, but across the board, um, were intending to vote for. So yes, we suffered from that. Um, everybody else did too. Um, certainly um, something we wished we could have overcome as the campaign um, wasn't for lack of trying, um, but uh, you know, that was a, it was a, it was a tough, it, we knew we were heading into a tough set of contests after New Hampshire. Um, so, His decision to um, withdraw from the race, um, just talk to us about the, the human emotion that goes into the, that decision from a campaign standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to break too many confidences about how that all unfolded. And uh, it was a, you know, it was a tough, it was a, it was a tough, tough decision. Um, but I think at the end of the day, he looked at the numbers, he looked at the map, um, and what he realized was um, his continued presence in the race 
was not going to lead to a win for him, but was just going to prevent um, voters consolidating behind another candidate. And what is very important to him and always has been very important to him um, is the party coming together and really unifying behind the nominee and ending um, that the, any sort of inter-party warfare over things. Um, and he felt very strongly that in order to set um, the, whoever the candidate was in his mind, obviously North Joe Biden was hoping for a Biden victory. In his mind, the best way to propel Biden to a win um, was to get out of the race. Um, it was an incredibly selfless decision. Um, it was an incredibly, um, you know, this is somebody who's thinking big picture about the party, about the country. One of his big concerns, which he talked about a lot in the debates was, um, you know, at that stage in the race, it looked like it was between um, Joe and Bernie and, you know, you, it, things were moving somewhat in Bernie's direction. You know, Joe Biden hadn't won anything. Um, aside from South Carolina at that point. So there was all these question marks, you know, is it going to be Joe? Is it going to be Bernie? And Pete worried very much that if Bernie Sanders was at the top of the ticket, that that would really hurt down ballot candidates. It would really hurt folks like Cal Cunningham in North Carolina trying to win that seat. Um, you know, he's from Indiana. He's from a red, red state and sort of understood the that there's a lot of folks that just aren't... Um, where Bernie Sanders is on a lot of policies, but they can get behind Joe Biden and the drag on the down ticket matters just as much as the White House, you know, winning up and down. You, if you win the White House and you don't win the Senate, if you win the White House and you have governors across the country against you, if you, you know, win the White House and don't have um, the House of Representatives, like it makes governing incredibly difficult. And the best way to set somebody up um, for a successful presidency is to ensure wins up and down the ballot. And, you know, Pete always says, We've got to stop acting as though the White House is the only office that matters. And that's very true to his character. He believes that. And so he made a decision that um, was a tough one, which, you know, I, I cried. <laughs> I was sad. A lot, a lot of us were in tears that day. Um, but, uh, yeah, but it was the right decision. And um, I was extremely proud that he could be that that level-headed and that selfless and that had that clarity of vision it was it was an amazing moment and just a testament i believe to, to his character and i guess in the back of his mind and the back of your minds as well he's a young guy he's got a great career ahead of him in public office wherever mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. that may lead um and legacy is yeah. important in politics mm -hmm. as well um yeah uh let's turn our attention to um the contemporary campaign mm -hmm. Um, first of all, uh, last week the, we had the Democratic uh, National Convention. Um, I'm sure that you didn't miss a second of it. Um, how did you? What, what I guess what I'm interested in is, I think part of the, the Biden strategy is to energise the base and make sure that they turn out to vote. And I know that notwithstanding mm -hmm. all the different sort of restrictions and things that are mm -hmm. in place. Uh, the U.S. Postal Service, um, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. um, states that are really trying to make it harder for traditional Democratic voters to vote. Leaving that all aside, it's important for him to turn out the, the base, energise the base. Um, has he and has he and uh, Harris established uh, through that convention? Um, a, do you s foresee that for the next uh, 67 days, I think it is, that there is going to be enough energy in the base to say, yes, we'll, we're not only don't we, do we not Donald, want Donald Trump to be the, the 
to be returned to the White House, but we're actually inspired enough to get out and make sure that we do vote and stay in line for maybe six hours to cast our ballot. Yeah, I mean, I think this idea that the democratic base is not energised is oversold by um, a lot of media coverage. Um, it may be that they're not swooning over Joe Biden and, you know, passing out in the aisles, but um, here's an enormous amount of goodwill among Democrats, um, in particular because he was, you know, President Obama's right-hand man for eight years and President Obama is still a beloved figure in the Democratic Party, you know, the most popular politician in the country, if not the world. Um, you know, this is somebody who is, uh, the halo effect of Barack Obama is is huge. And but Joe Biden himself is, you know, such a, has such a long history with Democratic voters, um, has such empathy and kindness. This is somebody who grew up very working class, has overcome a lot of loss and grief in his life with the loss of his son and his first wife. And, you know, he's, this is somebody who has publicly lived a lot of trauma and he has incredible goodwill among Democratic voters. So it may be that, you know, they've known him for a long time. They're not sort of, you know, falling over themselves to, you know, you know, in the, in the way that Obama inspired people in 2008. But, but, but there are, Democrats are excited to vote for Joe Biden. They're excited by having a black woman as the vice presidential nominee. Um, I'm not particularly worried about the enthusiasm of Democrats. You know, what I'm worried about is, and I think every Democrat has this worry in the pit of their stomach, is the mechanics of voting this year, is how people are actually going to pass their, cast their ballots for the reasons that you, you mentioned. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm more worried about um, the turnout among some of those independent moderates who aren't dyed-in-the-wool Democrats, but are the ones that swing elections that were very important to Democratic victories in 2018 in the House, um, that, that, that their enthusiasm for voting might decline um, given COVID and given all the uncertainties around um, voting in person and the very active um, campaign of making people feel scared about uh, postal voting plus the you know systematic dismantling of the postal service you know all of those things um, I think Democrats are intent to vote but you don't win just with democratic voters right you you, you need that big slice of, of independence um, particularly in the states that we talked about earlier um, and that's what worries me more you know the the suppression of those votes whether it is active by you know mechanisms that Republicans have put in place or um, whether it is you know sort of the passive suppression due to COVID. Um, I do think that there is active voter suppression among voters of color um, that you know that is very well documented particularly in states like Georgia um, you know that that is a is a clear concern um, but 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 that's not about um, black voters not coming out to vote, it is about their votes being denied. Um, and that is a different question to me. And even anecdotally, when you watch the, on election day, um, the footage of Americans going and doing their democratic duty and going and voting, um, you always see uh, rural white voters <laughs> wandering in, literally just wandering into yeah. an, an empty yep. um, polling center to cast their ballot. And then you'll see uh, an urban polling centre where there is a queue that is out the door and around the block mm -hmm. and uh, the majority of the people standing in that line are people of colour waiting mm -hmm. to cast their vote and are there for hours on hours on hours. It's just... It's 
it's not an accident. No. <laughs> you know, they call it systemic racism for a reason. It is, it is an active um, and, and, you know, it, it's, a, it's a strategy that is being pursued by, you know, predominantly Republicans in power to try to make voting harder for populations that they know won't vote for them um, and populations that they, you know, have tried to deny the vote for many, many years. So. And to your point before, I mean, that, that, that is why that these down-ballot races are so important, not just so the, important. yeah, not just the Senate and the House, but also state houses as well, particularly with the census coming up. What's your yeah. insight into, into that? Because what we'll do next is I do want to run across some of those, these states, but I just want to get your thoughts on um, uh, some of these like further down-ballot races. How are, you, how are you feeling about that, generally speaking, for the Democrats? Um, in terms of the Senate or in terms of... I'm talking like uh, like state races, um, just a general vibe about do you think that the Democratic Party have got their... I don't want to imply that they haven't had their eye on the ball in previous years, but like when I... I, I like groups like Run For Something make mm. me feel a bit better about the, the broader centre-left operation yeah. into this campaign than it was in previous years. That's kind of what, what I'm sort of... Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think Run for Something was the group that I was going to mention also is doing really incredible work. Um, but I think, you know, the DLCC has done a lot, has got more resources than it had in the past. And I do think that 2016 really shook people up about making sure we pay attention and, and sort of recognising that Republicans have done a very good job for decades at focusing on elections from school boards up, you know, and, and having their hands at the on the levers of power at every place in government and the democratic side has been less focused on that but i do think you know we saw it in 2017 in virginia we saw it again in 2018 um and i think that we are building infrastructure there's also groups like color of change that are doing great work um and then there are you know outside groups that don't endorse candidates like the aclu um but are are educating voters about the issues on the ballot and that that matters for things like you know we don't have this in Australia but like county prosecutors um, and sheriffs you know these law enforcement officials that get directly elected by people um, you know making sure that we're judges you know making sure that that, that progressive and, and you know uh, moderate even um, candidates are replacing some of these conservatives that have been able to sort of just hold on to those positions for, for, for years and years and years because we either haven't had the focus or the resources or whatever to compete at that level. Um, and I think that, that we're much more competitive now. Turning to some of the states, I want to start first of all with uh, Wisconsin. Um, uh -huh. Obama won it by almost seven percentage points in 2012, Trump by 0.7 uh, four years ago. The real clear politics average across all of the polls that have been done at a state level in Wisconsin has Biden leading by three and a half points. Mm -hmm. Obviously Wisconsin at the moment is the, uh, is in the news a lot because of the, uh, the shooting of uh, Jacob Blake mm -hmm. yeah, and the reignition of a lot of racial justice protests across the state. Mm -hmm. um, we saw today and over the last four days at that Nuremberg rally that they like to call the Republican <laughs> national convention. Um, it's like Nuremberg meets Lindenberg. Um, uh, but, but with such unclear messaging, right? Like just, you know, you're going from anti-immigrant rhetoric to a naturalization ceremony to, you know, like the, the racial rhetoric was just unbelievable. I mean, I, anyway, just a <laughs> shocking couple. My, it's, it's, it's sad for the Republican party. Oh, anyway. It, yeah, it really is. Two takeaways actually from me for the, from, from the four days of the, 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 the Republican convention. One, the, 
the citizenship ceremony in the White House, uh, <laughs> watching it, it was quite clear to me at least two of those people there did not know that they were now on centre stage for the RNC. Uh, they were looking around going, what? What? Oh, you've pushed me through this. <laughs> like He opened this cupboard and now you're in this room and all of a sudden he's the president. I'm looking at naturalised <laughs> so American citizens. That was weird. Two, the t- watching today with Trump do uh, accept the nomination of his party in the um, the South Lawn of the White House, it just looked like Back to the Future 2 in alternate 1985 when Biff Tannen is now the mayor of Hill Valley and he's running the show. And, oh, the, and, and the clock tower, you know, there's like bikey gangs, the place is on fire, it's a casino. Like I was just going, oh my God, this is Back to the Future 2. It's actually happened. <laughs> That's a really funny reference. And like, I'm laughing at this because of the, the absurdity, you know, you have to laugh. But, but in all seriousness, this is wrong. It's a violation of the Hatch Act. Um, he should not be able to use the trappings of the office for political propaganda. You know, like this, this is unprecedented and we should never, we should never stop saying this is not normal. Mm. This should not happen. And whether or not voters care about it is beside the point. The point is that you should not be using taxpayer dollars and government facilities and the trappings of the office of the presidency for explicitly political purposes. It's why no president has done a convention at the White House before. We, we don't, they don't do these kind of things. And I'm sure Republicans think they're very clever and they're patting themselves on the back for doing this, but it's wrong. And, and, and we, we should be outraged about it. And, and, and it, it, it is, it is against the Hatch Act, you know, <laughs> this yeah. is, and we shouldn't forget that. So I'm laughing because, I mean, it's kind of funny also, but it, it's also deadly serious. What, I, mean, I know, I know. You it's just like, have to. Or you're just going to be angry all the time. Yeah, exactly. Okay, sorry. Back to Wisconsin. Uh, <laughs> sorry, um, right, sorry. I feel like I'm talking way too much. You're going to have to edit this podcast. No, down. no, no. Like, don't be sorry. The, the folks at home love it. What are your <laughs> thoughts about Wisconsin in terms of our chances there? I mean, this this or Michigan is probably the first two that, we, that you'd like to think that they, they could come back. But does the events does black lives matter the way that the republicans are trying to frame this is you know democratic lawlessness does this impact uh on biden's ability to uh win this state what are your thoughts it is it is still hard to know how this stuff is going to play out um what i see in the work that i do um among swing voters at any rate is a very strong um affinity for the principles that Black Lives Matter protesters are protesting about, you know, uh, really disturbed by systemic racism, really disturbed by police brutality. Um, You know, people definitely feel very strongly that change is overdue and change is needed in the way we do policing in the United States and in particular um, the treatment of black people at the hands of police. Like that, that, that is almost a universal opinion. Mm. However, (laughs) there is, at the, you know, voters are complex. People are complex. They can hold contradictory ideas in their heads at the same time. And I'm talking specifically swing voters here. I just did the big study on swing voters in Wisconsin. And mm. at, at, at the same time, they, they are worried about this feeling of chaos. And there's chaos everywhere. There's chaos with COVID. There's chaos with economic collapse. And this is just adding to the sense that the country is sort of out of control. Um, and and they, they worry about it. They, they, they know the police have to change, but they are not at defund the police yet. You know, like there is, there is, there is a lot of gray area there. So I'm not quite sure, um, to be honest, how it is going to play out. I think it, what's important is that I think 
Biden is really trusted on a lot of this stuff, that, that people don't necessarily see him as um, particularly far out there on the left um, on some of these issues, um, that he has the support of the black community pretty generally. Um, obviously, there are some folks that take issue with him, as with any, you know, large group of voters, not everybody's going to, you know, they're not homogenous blocks, but he does have really significant or really deep support in the black community. So, you know, I tend to think, and Wisconsin's also interesting too, because they have a Democratic governor, but a, a Republican legislature, and the Republican legislature has, you know, very actively tried to block the governor on a lot of things, and there's a lot of frustration about that that you know stalemate that's happening at the, the the leadership level in Wisconsin itself. So you know my sense is that Biden will still pull it out. That that we have enough sort of the suburban moderate vote is good enough um, that you know he'll he'll be able to turn out the people he needs to turn out, assuming that people can get their votes in and counted. Mm. Um, but and 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 that that the overarching concern is the complete um, botching of the coronavirus response um, and what that has meant to people's both health um, lives, but also their economic lives. You know, a lot of, so many people that we talk to at any rate, they're worried about COVID, um, they're worried about it, they're not actively, they don't actively necessarily think they're going to get it, but, but they are experiencing the economic consequences of it like the economic consequences are almost having um more of an impact on a lot of voters than the health issue itself um and they you know it's just so different from in australia like it's just devastating over there and so i think i think that will take precedence over what's happening um over any worries that they might have um about you know uh things being a little out of control um and you also have a president who tear gas peaceful protesters you know it's not like he has a lot of um, yeah. uh, uh, credibility on this issue. Um, and, you know, we saw this horrifying incident of um, a young man shooting two protesters dead, um, you know, coming from over state lines, bringing his AR-15. Um, he has links to, you know, far-right groups and all of that sort of stuff. So I don't think that, I don't think that Trump has much of a, is, is necessarily providing people with a lot of comfort. Um, in terms of his ability to handle this stuff. North Carolina, uh, Romney won it by two points. Trump uh, won it by three. It's a tie at the moment on real clear politics. Why is North Carolina on the map? Because I canvassed there in 2016. It did not feel like a democratic <laughs> state. I mean, it's one of these places that, again, like a lot of these states, um, there's very big regional differences. Yeah, the rural areas of, of, of North Carolina feel like you know, the rural areas of Alabama and the urban areas around sort of Duke University, that triangle, um, Raleigh, Durham uh, area, um, feel very cosmopolitan. And I think the interesting thing about North Carolina is that it has benefited in the last sort of eight to 10 years from a lot of internal migration to the state. Economically, it's done quite well. And most of that internal migration within the United States to North Carolina has been young people and people of color. Um, and those are, you know, democratic constituencies. Um, they also have a democratic governor, um, Roy Cooper, who's very popular. Um, they have a competitive uh, Senate race there right now, um, where Tom Tillis, the incumbent Republican, is quite unpopular, and Cal Cunningham, who's, you know, a war veteran, um, really great candidate, um, is doing very well in that race and, and putting that race on the map for Democrats. So, um, I still, you know, North Carolina is is very much a toss up, very much you know so nobody really knows which way it's going to go, but but it's on the table for us for sure. Florida, uh, obviously Obama, point nine mm -hmm. in twenty twelve, mm -hmm. Trump 
1.2. Biden's 3.7 at the moment in the polls. Uh, you know, Florida, like. So Florida, it's always um, such a hard state to predict. Um, very um, difficult population to turn out. But the thing that is the most, probably the most heartening thing that I've seen about Biden's candidacy, most more generally, but a, but is particularly meaningful in Florida is the degree to which voters over the age of 65 are moving into his column, right? Like those, those senior voters. And the reason I find that heartening is that they are very reliable voters. You know, older voters tend to turn out, they, they, they turn out in high numbers, they're dedicated voters. Um, and, you know, I think the COVID response where, you know, the Trump administration essentially told older people they could die um, and that would be okay if, because the economy needs to, you know, move along. Um, they they've they've not they've just given up on this administration and you know florida is a state that has some really strong trump base voters a lot of maga hat wearers and there are there are places in in florida that are that are deep 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 red um but it's a diverse state you know the the panhandle is very very different from you know miami mm. um and the the fact that part of the reason that biden is notching up these gains and you're seeing these really big margins is that he's growing his vote among over 65s, um, even higher than Obama's vote on over 65s, right? And that, that to me, is a very encouraging sign. Um, and that's, that's why I think Florida is looking really good for him. Uh, Pennsylvania, the home of uh, Vice President uh, uh, Biden, uh, Trump accused Biden of deserting his home state uh, when he left when he was 10, I might point out, which is just absolutely <laughs> insane. Um, is it as uh, is it as simple as a, a case of Democrats trying to turn out uh, the the major cities of Philadelphia and Republicans trying to turn out the the rest of the state, um, or is it a bit more complex than that? I mean, everything's a bit more complex than that, but that's not a bad way to think about it. You know, you run up the margins in um, Pennsylvania, uh, sorry, in um, Philly and Pittsburgh and the related suburbs, and you're you're pretty much okay. Same thing as like Georgia, for example. You you can run up the margin really big in Atlanta and the Atlanta metro area. It really helps. Um, obviously, you need to win slices of everything else, but that that can help. I, I feel I feel fairly good about Pennsylvania. It's one of the ones you know, um, of the three, you know, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. I think I feel probably most confident about Michigan, then Pennsylvania, and then Wisconsin in terms of like where I think the, that it is possible to win. Um, all of that being caveated by my ongoing fear about how people are going to vote yeah. and all of that. But, but, you know, if the election were held under normal circumstances, normal being, you know, non-COVID, people could turn up to vote the way they normally do. Um, I, think, I think we would win all three of those states um, quite convincingly. Um, and I think definitely Michigan and Pennsylvania, we would see big swings towards Biden, but it's just really hard to know what the, t what the universe is going to look like this time around. Um, let's talk about Michigan quickly because you did just mention then that you're feeling reasonably good about that <laughs> the most out, yeah. of, out of the three. My theory, yeah. that I, my theory, and I want to see if you think it stacks up because it could be fundamentally wrong, but go with me on this one. Okay. Hillary lost Michigan to Bernie Sanders in the um, mm -hmm. primaries. Then Hillary lost Michigan to Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, Gretchen Whitmer uh, easily won back the governor's house uh, in um, East Lansing. Is that the capital? I'm terrible with yep. American capitals. Uh, by about 10 points. And then Biden beat Sanders mm -hmm. in the primary. Is it a case of that just Michigan wasn't in love with Hillary Clinton as opposed to loving Donald Trump? I think that's right. Um, 
I think a lot of places weren't in love with Hillary Clinton and, you know, her favorability numbers were never great. You know, that was one of the big challenges of 2016 was that um, though she had, you know, a lot of staunch supporters, her favorability numbers were never much better than Donald Trump's, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, there's a whole path I can go down about gender and sexism and all of that. But, you know, it's also somebody who had sort of three decades worth of, you know, political baggage um, that she was carrying into that election. So, and Biden's, Biden's a different case. You know, Donald Trump is a reality, not just a fantasy as he was in 2016. Um, so, you know, it's just, it, it's a, it's a very different set of circumstances, but um, I think, I think, yeah, I think you're, you're, you're right that it was, Michigan was one of those places where, you know, she just didn't catch fire. And, 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 the, and, you know, there's all, there's a lot of anecdotal stuff about whether or not the campaign spent enough time there on the ground and organizing and all of that. And I don't necessarily feel like I have any expert opinion on that. Um, but that, that sense of inevitability um, that we talked about at the top of the podcast, I don't think played very well for her in Michigan. Mm. Okay, last two states, Arizona. Um, Romney won it by nine points. Trump won it by three and a half. Biden's leading in the polls by two. It's shifting towards becoming, mm -hmm. you know, a state that it's obviously clearly on the table. Um, yeah. What's driving that? Arizona's exciting. I mean, a, a few things are driving it. Um, one is, you know, population dynamics, um, you know, growing uh, a diverse population there in Arizona. It's another one of those sort of sunbelt states that, um, people are moving to and as a growth state um, and that growth is coming among you know people of color among young people all that sort of stuff so there's there's definitely some interesting dynamics there um, there's been I think there's been a lot of um, infrastructural investment um, from the Democratic Party in um, Arizona and making sure that um, that we are able to register voters that we're able to capitalize on you know good candidates so people like mark kelly who's a fantastic senate candidate who's probably who's probably going to win yeah i mean arizona arizona is a huge pickup opportunity i think we've democrats have invested well there um and uh they also had a a really bad um experience with covid um recently which is devastating for the people there um they just did not have the, the support from the federal government that they needed. They did not have the testing equipment. I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking and it's really sad, but I think that um, sadly, I don't like to talk about these things as sort of pure transactional political issues, but I think that accrues to Biden's benefit as well. I mean, again, it's toss up, but I, I, it's one of the ones that I'm pretty excited to watch. And, and you know, uh, Hillary lost Arizona by less than she lost Ohio, for example. So um, it's a state that's sort of, is more and more purple um, as the years go by and hopefully soon blue. Uh, in 2018, in the midterm, 16% of GOP um, voters, uh, women voters, I should say, voted for the Democratic uh, candidate, candidate, Senate candidate, uh, Kirsten uh, Sinema. Sinema. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, there's, uh, I, I guess there's an argument there. There's, there's a, also a shift, um, not just um, in terms of um, population changes but also within the actual voting base there at the moment there are people starting to look at other options which is promising well, for the democrats and I, and I think that was the case across the board in 2018 that that the, the people that really drove a lot of those victories were were moderate and republican women who 
cannot stand the rhetoric and the divisiveness coming out of this White House and find it offensive and problematic and don't want to, you know, raise their kids in this environment and find him to be anti-woman and all of that. Like, so, you know, women are, women are critical to democratic victories right now um, and will be critical in Arizona. And I think, you know, we have a good shot. Last one, Ohio. So goes the nation. Yeah, not anymore. <laughs> no. Um, um, I kind of thought that it was definitely back on the table because for a while there, it wasn't, I think maybe in October last year, we went, I think you made the point, like, why are we putting money in Ohio? Like, you know, as you said, like we, Hillary lost Arizona by a smaller margin than Ohio. Um, then the Big Ten College Football Conference decides to cancel the season. The Buckeyes have no chance of winning the national championship. Let's blame Donald Trump. Ohio is <laughs> now back on the table. That's my theory. <laughs> um, I haven't done much work, you know, I have a lot of insight into Ohio right now. Um, I tend to think just structurally, it's not great for Democrats right now. Um, it's not a particularly diverse population. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think it is the easiest pickup opportunity. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's in that toss up bucket with, you know, Arizona and Georgia, you know, and, and Ohio, I, I tend to believe that Arizona and Georgia are more, and North Carolina are more winnable for Democrats than Ohio, just because of the, the population composition. Um, I'm happy to be proven wrong, um, but I, I do think that the, the Trump base is more that white Midwestern non-college voter, um, and you know that's a lot of Ohio. So I think, I think it's a tough, I think it's a tough place for Democrats right now. In 2016, 54% of union households uh, in Ohio voted for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that says something. Like the experiences, yeah, the experiences of Australians in the Howard years when, you know, like when I worked for the Transport Workers Union, we surveyed our members about who you voted for in the last election and we t- found out that more than 50% of our membership voted for John Howard. Mm-hmm. You know, that starts to, you know, as, a, as, a, yep. as a social Democrat, you start to go, oh, okay, what are we doing wrong here? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think, I mean, I think things have backfired for him to some degree, though. You know, the trade wars have really hurt the manufacturing base. They've really hurt the rural part of the country. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of antagonism towards China and all of that hasn't necessarily um, had the economic gains amongst those people um, that he is pretend. Well, if you listen to the convention, you would think it's different. But mm-hmm. the reality is that that he has hurt some of those industries um, and this, all of the promises of jobs coming back have, have not materialized in any meaningful way. And certainly since COVID jobs have evaporated at an incredibly fast pace. So, um, so, uh, you know, it, it could be that, um, you know, we definitely have a case to make. Um, I guess I just feel a little less confident about Ohio. Maybe I shouldn't be, I don't know. Before we wrap up any uh, final thoughts going into November, 67 days to go. Oh, um, final thoughts. Um, look, I mean, I think, I think Joe Biden is a great candidate for this moment in particular. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of Joe Biden. I think he's, you know, a, a great, empathetic, kind leader. Um, but there's something about this moment that, that people are demanding sort of steadiness and familiarity um, and a sense of somebody who understands the pain and the anguish that the nation is going through, both in terms of people losing loved ones, but also in terms of just the ongoing economic anxiety of regular people in America that is just being compounded. You know, we have spiraling healthcare costs, spiraling cost of college, 
retirement feels more and more fanciful to a lot of people. Um, and they live with this day in, day out. And you have someone like Joe Biden who, you know, grew up in a working class household who knows what it's like when your dad loses your job and has a real connection to, you know, day-to-day people. You know, he, he, didn't, he didn't go to an Ivy League university. He's not from, a, you know, one of the royal families of American politics. He is kind of a, a regular Joe, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Um, and I think that there is something about that, that combination of his story, his personal warmth, you know, the way he communicates, um, and just that, that, that intense decency of him and his wife that is just really appealing at this moment in history, um, that sort of salve to the divisiveness and the anger that have been, you know, really made such a toxic public discourse for the past few years. And he does seem to offer a real relief for that. So I think there is a lot of um, underlying dynamics that are very beneficial for Biden. And, you know, I, I'm worried, as I've said repeatedly <laughs> about voting, I won't, I won't flog that dead horse again, but, um, but I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, I think Kamala Harris is an incredible um, pick. She's, she's going to be a great vice president. She's exciting. She's next generation. She's a wonderful orator. And she'll be a great sort of reinforcer of the message for Biden. Um, and also an important sort of um, way of putting a mark in the sand of saying, you know, I am the candidate that's going to usher in the next generation. I am the candidate who is going to meaningfully reach out to black and brown voters and bring them in um, to my coalition, bring them into my government um, and make sure we have, you know, a new type of leadership in Washington, um, even though he is an older white man himself. Um, it is you know, he's he's made the right gestures to say, I get it and I will, so, you know, you look at his, you know, people like his spokeswoman, Simone Sanders, who's just like wonderful, colorful, amazing woman. Um, you know, he's, he's made some very strategic choices about who he is putting in the foreground of his campaign that signal this is somebody who isn't just going to be, um, you know, back to the past. Um, he is going to, you know, usher in a new generation of leadership and I think that's that's exciting too. It will be exciting to watch over the next uh, remaining uh, days and weeks as we get closer and closer to the election. Um, and uh, Katie, we do appreciate uh, your time and your insights. Yeah, well, I hope it's vaguely interesting for folks. Um, uh, sorry, I sorry I talk so much. Gosh, no, not at all. Get me, Look, get me I, talking, and I don't stop. I um I, I have intentions and hopes of um maybe spending sort of the last couple of weeks in October leading up to the poll to doing a whole bunch of um. Uh, podcast starting to really sort of zero in on how the race is going so we'd love to have you back oh cool um but until then um great talking to you um and uh, we look forward to talking to you soon great well thank you for having me um this is fun